Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is January 1st, 2023. Amanda Borshell Dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Laser Behrman, and Knesset correspondent, Carrie Keller-Lind. Happy New Year, guys. Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I was in bed by 10, but I know you guys have more of a life than that. Bechol in any case, we have lots to update on. From the swearing-in of the new government to Friday's United Nations General Assembly resolution, we'll also hear about recently deceased former Pope Benedict XVI's relationship with Israel and the Jews. But first, a short break. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from The Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. We're back, and we'll start with you, Laser. On Friday, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution to refer Israel's quote-unquote occupation of Palestinian territory to the International Court of Justice. Now, we've talked about this looming vote for several weeks already. I assume you weren't surprised. And so what are next steps? Sure. No one was surprised by this at all. Um, Since the November vote in the UN General Assembly Fourth Committee passed, which was basically the preliminary step to refer to the General Assembly, um, Israel's been trying to get as many uh, quote-unquote like-minded states, so those are, broadly speaking, democratic states um, in Europe, primarily in North America, to vote with Israel. And if they're not going to vote with Israel, to at least abstain or not show up. And there was some measured success in that regard, in that uh, most EU members did not support the measure. And you had some countries move. Most notably, you, uh, the United Kingdom went from abstain to voting against. And very famously, Ukraine, which supported the measure in November and kicked off a diplomatic fight with Israel, um, didn't show up this time. Um, so they didn't support the measure either, which Israel is treating as a victory. They knew they weren't going to win. Uh, Israeli diplomats tell me all the time, and we know this, that Palestinians have an automatic majority at the UN. So what, this is uh, moving for a moral victory. What happens now? Now it's kind of anticlimactic. Now you have a year to two year long process in which the ICJ, the International Court of Justice in The Hague, asks for uh, opinions, asks for input from member states, from other organizations. Um, So there's a period where that will take place. And then they will render their judgment at some time uh, after that. Again, this judgment is not going to be a binding resolution. It's advisory opinion. But of course, Israel realizes that this could be used as an authoritative statement that Israel is committing war crimes and that any possession of any territory over the 1967 lines, or I guess I should say the 1949 lines, the Green Line, so it's both in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and also in the Golan Heights, um, is illegal and constitutes a war crime. Now, this isn't Israel's first rodeo with the International Court of Justice. What is happening in general with Israel and the court? So I want to just focus on the court, but in general, Palestinians are trying to internationalize the conflict, right? So Israel says all these measures should be um, should be handled by direct negotiations. That is the principle that has guided um, Israeli-Palestinian talks and Israeli-Palestinian progress such as it is over the years, and that's what the international community has supported, if you think back to the Oslo Accords. Um, what Israel accuses the Palestinians of doing, and I think this is true, is to bypass negotiations and try to impose um, what they would want to have happen through the court of public opinion and through actual international courts, the ICC and the ICJ. 
and also through UN resolutions. And Israel and its friends, including the United States, are very much against this and say this is um, a way to avoid negotiations, which is the way that all these measures should be should be handled. Okay, Lazer, thank you for that. Kerry, turning to you and moving a bit back in the timeline, on Thursday, the new government was sworn in. And Kerry, you covered the stormy Knesset proceedings with demonstrations outside the Knesset, several MKs ejected during the swearing in. So it set the mood for us a little bit. You know, I think the mood in and around the Knesset was much like it is in the country. There's a lot of bark, but very little bite. Um, even the demonstration outside the Knesset was only a few hundreds to a thousand people. Uh, it was very easy to get in when I came in right before the swearing session. Um, within the swearing session, it was, uh, <laughs> I would say, characteristically like a rowdy Knesset in that the opposition was united to cheer. There were a lot of cheers of weak against Bibi, almost like weak, 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 very organized. Um, a bunch of MKs were thrown out of the session. You'd see them yelling and getting escorted out. And as soon as they leave the plenum, they're all smiles because it's a, a bit of theater. Um, but there wasn't really strong tension that you would expect, especially given um, the line that the incoming opposition has about this government and how dangerous they claim this government will be to democracy and to certain fundamental values, especially for minorities in Israel. Um, so while the, it was a bit stormy and the theater was kept up, it, it didn't really feel... Um, that consequential in terms of, of reaction was consequential is that this government came in and it is setting the tone that it is here to work. They held a first cabinet meeting already on Thursday evening. Um, they've laid out a couple of principles of things they want to immediately get to work on, such as cost of living, Iran, and um, improving Israel's internal security and governance. I think that last bit is going to be the most interesting especially as there are a couple of interesting appointments, um, including far-right leaders and key security positions, that we'll have to see uh, how this will develop exactly as the, as the government starts its first steps. Okay, we'll take a short break and then we'll drill down into that. Hi, Daily Briefing listeners. I'm so happy you've joined us for our daily analysis of what's important in Israel, the Middle East, and the Jewish world. Like what you hear? Check out our Times Will Tell weekly podcast. Every Friday, you can hear conversations with authors, artists, archaeologists, and thought leaders from around the globe. Subscribe to Times Will Tell, our weekly half-hour feature, wherever you find your podcasts. Enjoy! And we are back. So let's talk about, Carrie, the ministries that were handed out and to whom. Uh, anything particularly surprising here? I think, um, you know, surprising, yes, we, we've covered this quite a bit. Um, so for avid Times of Israel readers, this should sound familiar. Uh, there were a couple incredibly surprising appointments, such as a, um, a convicted, uh, someone who was convicted of uh, incitement to racism and supporting a terror group being not just in charge of the police, but given expanded powers over the police. And that's Itamar Benkvir. Um, another one would be Betzla Smotlich. He is a uh, very strong supporter of settlements. He wants to annex parts of the West Bank. And in 2005, he was held by the Shin Bet for three weeks on suspicion of planning a violent protest. I, I think this was something like pouring gasoline all over cars on one of Israel's main highways, uh, but never ultimately charged for this. Um, this was in response to Israel's pullout of its settlements from Gaza and uh, the northern West Bank during the 2005 disengagement. And so he's given the keys to a key part of the defense ministry, which oversees 
Jewish building and Palestinian construction as well in the West Bank Area C. So I was talking to some people um, in the defense establishment over the weekend about this, and they're not even really sure what exactly the outlines of Smotrich's role would be, which is something that sort of came up during the committee discussions um, as they were talking about preparing the legislation that would enable Smotrich to take this position. It, just like Benkvar, it's not really clear where the lines of his authority and, and the defense ministers would be, such as where the lines of Benkvar's authority and the police commissioner will lie. So those are two very interesting appointments. Uh, of course, we have Avi Maoz, a far-right politician who's um, anti-LGBT, has made... Uh, copious misogynistic statements, only believes in an orthodox uh, view of Judaism as he defines it. He is going to be in charge of Jewish national identity. Uh, There's some other weird appointments, such as um, we have foreign ministries uh, split (laughs) with two rotations in our foreign ministry. We're starting with Ellie Cohen, who's um, sort of a politician considered in Bibi's camp within the Likud. He is going to take the first year in the foreign ministry. And then one year later, we're going to have Israel Katz rotate in. Katz um, is not known for his English, um, but he is known for holding a strong power base within the Likud itself. So this was an appointment to quiet one of the factions within the Likud, um, because Likud has many different loyalties within its 32-member um, parliamentary faction. And so he'll take it over for two years. And then for the fourth year of the term, if the government lasts that long, Ellie Cohen will come back in. And this is not the only ministry that has rotations. Our finance ministry has a rotation, our interior ministry, our health ministry. Basically, almost every big ministry except for defense and justice are going to have rotations, which is really uh, an interesting way to to run a government because something we saw this outgoing government that only lasted uh, 18 months or so, 19 months, is that's very hard to work on these long-term plans when you're constantly having a, a change of personnel, especially when you look at our finance ministry. We're going to start with someone who believes in a liberal form of economics, Betzel Smoplich, and then switch to someone, Arya Derry, the head of Shas, who is the probably the, the most socialist leader that we have right now in the Knesset. Um, so really, really unclear where some of these policies will head. What is clear is that uh, this government will probably be much more supportive of expanding settlements, to Laser's point about the um, International Court of Justice, as well as pursuing a very widespread platform of judicial reform. Let's talk women. How many women in the end are there in the government? Five out of the 30 ministers are women, and two of them were added at the last minute. One so last minute that she'll only be sworn in tomorrow because she was added after the government was presented. So this was definitely an issue. I believe the last government swore in with nine female ministers. Um, we also have very low female representation in the Knesset itself. We'll have to see how it shakes out once some ministers quit and uh, new Knesset members come in under something called the Norwegian law. But it's it's less than um, less than the last government, especially so less in the ruling coalition, because remember, two of the coalition's parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties, don't let women run on their list at all. But there is a very interesting precedent that was set with the Speaker of the Knesset. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so our our Knesset Speaker is Omer Ohana. He is a Likud member. He's also thought of as someone who's close to Netanyahu. He's a former justice and police minister, and he is our first openly gay Knesset Speaker. He was, I believe, our first openly gay minister as well. Um, you know, when o- Ohana was sworn in, uh, there was an interesting picture that was taken of the ultra-Orthodox party members, a couple of them just kind of shielding their faces or putting their heads down when he was talking to his partner and his two children who were in the audience kind of watching his swear-in. And Ohana made a really lovely statement um, saying that no no family or no child will be hurt while he is uh, speaker of this Knesset, by this Knesset. 
um, as a lot of legislation about about pulling back um, some of the anti-discrimination protections that's being raised. Uh, some talk about reinstating now banned conversion therapy has been raised. And so there are a lot of questions about minority rights, about LGBT rights in particular. Uh, and Omer Ohana was very clear, he's not going to let any of that fly in his Knesset to the extent that he can control this with his power. Remember, Speaker of the Knesset uh, has has influential but also limited role. Uh, he controls the legislative pace and agenda. Um, so this is something that I, I would say is a signal from Likud saying, you know, there's all this concern about minority rights, but we have an openly gay speaker. It's Amir Hanna. You'll see him every day in the Knesset. Okay, Carrie, thanks for that. Laser, finally, let's talk about former Pope Benedict XVI, who in 2013 became the first Pope to resign as head of the Catholic Church since the Middle Ages. He died on Saturday, of course, aged 95, but he's left a kind of mixed legacy, I would say, in terms of Israel and the Jews. How do you think he will likely be remembered? In terms of his relations with the Jewish people, I think it will be mostly positive. Uh, he came after Pope John Paul II, who was considered the real um, trailblazer, really um, you know, brought that relationship forward. And I think that we can see Ratzinger or Pope Benedict XVI as someone who didn't just continue the path, but actually uh, expanded upon it. And so what are some of these ways? The first uh, thing that he did, the first letter that he sent um, after his election, the first message was the chief rabbi of Rome, Rav Toaf, on his 90th birth- birthday. He was the second pope in history after John Paul II to visit a synagogue, and he did so um, several times during his pontificate, uh, excuse me, three times. Um, and he was also the third pope to visit Israel. So you had Paul VI, you had John Paul II, and you also had um, you also had Benedict. And also, let's not forget, he was, uh, as a German pope, he was... You know, the, the fact that he had grown up and, and, and spent some time a uh, sh- short while in, in Hitler youth, you know, during the Holocaust, he had seen the Holocaust with his own eyes. Um, this was actually something that certainly weighed on him, something that he, he spoke about. And I think he was very much aware of the need to um, foster these healthier relations between Jews and Catholics and to keep the Holocaust um, alive. And he also said it was very clear that, that the church has to stop trying to convert Jews. On the other hand, there were some missteps, some very public ones, including lifting the excommunication of a bishop who was also a Holocaust denier. So there's a mixed legacy, but I think he will certainly be seen as someone who took that relationship uh, forward in so many in many important ways. Now, Laser, on Thursday, you were at a pretty, I would say, decorous ceremony at the president's residence. Tell us about this annual event. Certainly was decorous. Uh, this was this is a nice annual tradition. Uh, between Christmas and New Year, um, the, the president at his residence in Jerusalem hosts the Christian leaders in the Holy Land. So that's the whole range of churches. They come in with their ceremonial garb. So you have, you know, from the Latin patriarch, the Greek Orthodox, the Ethiopians, the Coptics, Armenians, and then you also have some of the Protestant uh, churches as well. And then you have other religious leaders. There was Druze religious leaders, the Baha'i. Uh, members of the Baha'i faith. So it's it's really a nice time to get together and to uh, reaffirm some of what, uh, you know, some of what Israel really tries to be on the, on the world stage and, and reaffirms that the, one of the visions of Israel and the Holy Land is to be a place where different religions are able to worship in peace and to send a message of peace to the world. Uh, President Herzog certainly made that statement in his English language speech and said that religious tolerance and freedom is at the heart of what Israel is. 
And also um, Shas Minister Aryeh Derry, who we just spoke about. He was the minister representing uh, the country as the interior minister. And he, in Hebrew, uh, made the pledge that he would continue, as he always has, to uh, work to serve the, the Arab sector as well. Um, so it was certainly a time for people to to reaffirm that. And I think it's important. And again, it came a couple hours before the, the ceremonial picture in that same room um, of the new government. So I think uh, certainly the, the president was sending a message and it seemed a message that was well-received by the church leaders in Israel. All right. Thank you both for joining me this New Year's Day. Bye, Amanda. Thank you. Happy New Year. Bye. Happy 2023 to all of us. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.